0: Awesome. Welcome, welcome all of you on this uh, Labor Labor Day. What what is this weekend? Fourth of July. Fourth of July weekend. Thank you. Got a little throat thing going here. In fact, I was, uh, I missed worship last week because I was sicker and a dog. And so I haven't had a chance to be back with you since we had our celebration Sunday. So even though it kind of be, you may be beyond that, could I just pause a moment and say one more time how awesome it was the response of of our church on our Beyond These Walls initiative. It's just so cool. I don't know if you uh, are aware, but the the latest total on, you know, we had a $5 million goal. Our latest total is $5,461,848. And the gifts and the pledges are still coming in. I just can't tell you what that did for your pastor's heart to hear your response. It apparently is something about this vision of getting rid of the debt and of giving ourselves away to our community as we've never done before that just captured our heart. Rhodie is my six million dollar woman. She's the one who says, What happens when we get to six million? You may be righter than we even imagine. So good for you for your faith. But I think it's, it's pretty exciting. And I just had to be, I had to bask in it one more time. We're actually going to be talking because this is just the beginning of this journey, obviously. And so in the, in the months and in the years to come, we're going to keep you apprised of, of the progress of this and, and begin to tell you the stories that are beginning to occur, that are being unleashed because we're freeing up these resources. Anyhow, great on you. Although I've got to say, as, as I have been experiencing day camp this last week, I want to remind you of something that I've been saying all along, and that is this. Chapel Hill has always been about beyond these walls. This is not something new for us, like we're suddenly going to care about others beyond this congregation. We have always been about that. We're simply doubling down on something that is really, our, I think, our instinct. And I would say particularly, we have always been about kids. We have always cared about reaching out to our kids. And day camp is a perfect example. You heard Pastor Bill mention that we had 324 kids here. 200 volunteers that put all that together. But here's a number that is going to boggle your mind. You ready to be boggled? Here it is. 199 of those kids have no connection with Chapel Hill Church. Isn't that amazing? Thank you for the applause. It gives me a chance to drink my tea. 74% of the people that showed up are folks who are out from outside of our walls. And we had a chance to help them to peek inside the walls and see all the magic that's going on around here. So I'm, I'm so grateful for Deb and, and for her great team. We just have, we have the best. They're just the best. Two weeks ago we were in Sacramento for our annual family reunion of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church called General Assembly and we really love the chance to to get together and to hang out and talk about the future of the church. Um, my daughter, who is a newly minted seminarian, uh, was there and working the crowds and networking and all I'm very pleased to tell you that she has a job. she's going to be working as a pastoral intern in a beautiful church great church in uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and you might say that's a long ways away well she was looking at Kenya. So right now, Richmond sounds awesome to her mom and to me. And I also got a chance to spend some time with Pastor Jeremy Vaccaro, whose birthday we celebrate in two days. That was very cool. What was not cool was the temperature. I looked down at the car thermometer at one point. It read 117. Yeah, now I don't know if the car was getting tricked into believing it was that hot, but if it was, I was getting tricked too, because it was hot as hell down there, so I am glad to be back up where it's a little more reasonable. The theme for the assembly was generation to generation, and we're asking this really important question, how is it that we're going to do a better job of handing on our faith to our children and to our grandchildren? How are we going to do that? At a time when actually millennials are fleeing the church. The, uh, the, the president of Barna institute, institute, a research institute that works especially in the area of religion and, and the church life of, of the United States, he had a very sobering statistic. He told us that 59% of kids who are church kids, who are plugged into the church, 59% of them will disconnect from the church by the time they're 15 years old. And most of them will never come back. And then he asked this very hard question. I think it's very provocative. The question is, do you love your church traditions more than your children? Because if you do love your church traditions more than your children, you'll keep your traditions and you'll lose your children. And regrettably, across the country, the answer that many churches are offering up is yes. We love our church traditions. We love our old ways of doing things. And the price that they're paying is the kids. I've got to say, I've been here for 30 years. I've never known Chapel Hill to be that kind of a church. I've always known Chapel Hill to be the kind of church that says, hey, we're going to be willing to set aside some of our preference because we want our kids to be here to sing the music that they need to sing so that they can be plugged into the life of our ministry. This service actually was an outgrowth of that passion. To find new ways to reach those who might not be connected to by other ways that we do worship. You would have been so proud of your older moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas in first service today because they had the same worship going for them. And they were up there and they were well, trying to clap and they were <laughs> trying to sing and, and they were loving it because they loved the kids and they want them in the church and so do I and so do you and may the Lord always make that to be this 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 kind of a church. Right? Amen? And if we do continue to have a passion for young people, it will be a passion that we gleaned from the New Testament. We just spent weeks looking at how Jesus took these young men, he poured the primary, his primary passion and energy was poured into the shaping of 12 young men, some of whom might well have been your age or younger, teenagers, teenagers. And the uh, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. I mean, we know of one of the more famous young men in the Bible because Paul wrote two letters to him. What was his name? Timothy, Timothy right. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, a young man. He said, don't be ashamed of how old you are. Don't, don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. This morning, uh, we're continuing a sermon series called Best Supporting Actor. And we'll be doing that through the first half of this summer. And... Uh, And I'm going to look not at Timothy, but at another young man that, uh, that he appears. He's less prominent, but man, when you look at the way that the story is woven together, I think it's inspiring. I hope you do too by the time we're done. You're going to have to work harder at this though, because we're going to be looking from place to place to place in the New Testament, piecing together these little tidbits of the story of the life of a young man named John Mark. Say John Mark. I love this guy. I think you're going to love him, too. He launched poorly, and he landed well. And, uh, and so let's take a look at that. In fact, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 12. If you've got your app, go to it. Don't be playing froggy games or whatever you're doing there. Uh, look at the Bible on there. Uh, Acts chapter 12, and let's ask the Lord to, to bless our time today. Father, if, if you do not work through your spirit, then the words that I offer will be nothing more than entertainment. We don't want to be entertained. We want to be transformed and so, God, today, in this moment, let us encounter you as we encounter your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first time John Mark appears in the, is in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 12. Acts twelve twelve. And uh, John Mark was a, was a young man. He was the son of a woman named Mary. Now, there's an odd name in the Bible. There's a ton of Marys, but there's another Mary. Uh, some traditions suggest that Mary's house, she was a woman of some means. Mary's house was where the Last Supper took place. Some think that Mary's house might have been where the Pentecost experience took place. At any rate, John Mark was her son. And uh, it was already a gathering place for the early disciples of Jesus. By Acts 12, hard times have fallen on the early church. One of the disciples, James, has been executed. And, uh, and seeing how the Jews liked the, the fact that the Christians had been persecuted in that way, they, put on, they doubled down on the pressure. And Peter is arrested for preaching the gospel. He's arrested. And so the, the believers got together and they begin to pray for Peter's release. What's cool about it, and you'll see that in that story in Acts, is that that God answers their prayer. And Peter is miraculously released by the intervention of an angel. And he begins to walk back. And I want to pick up that story here in Acts chapter 12, okay? Peter, we are told after he was set free by this angel, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Mark. So here's the first glimpse we have of John Mark. He is there when Peter shows up after this miraculous intervention to set him free and um and i want you to take note of something because this budding relationship with peter is going to play out importantly near the end of our story okay we don't know what interaction uh, peter had with john mark some have thought that perhaps peter was the one who led mark to the lord we don't know that but but pay attention because this relationship between peter and mark is going to blossom and become something really important later on and we know there was a tenderness about it because when, when peter wrote a letter called 1 Peter, very clever, he wrote a letter called 1 Peter and at the end of it he's, he references Mark in this way, he says, Mark my son, Mark my son. So you, there's already, you sense a tenderness that's developing between this great apostle and this youngster named Mark, okay? Tuck that away. There's another guy though that Mark had a, a relationship with that will be familiar to you. Uh, his, his given name was Joseph. But the apostles named him something else. They called him the son of encouragement. What was the name that's translated that? Barnabas, yeah, the son of encouragement. He had his name changed because of who he was, because of how he believed. And here's the relationship Mark had with Barnabas. He was his cousin. So Mark and the son of encouragement were, were cousins. And uh, this Barnabas was, he was such a guy. I can't wait to meet this guy. Uh, He must have been something else. Barnabas was the guy who believed in um, in Paul's conversion when everyone else was suspicious that it was a setup, that he was trying to be a, he was a spy that was trying to infiltrate the early church. And when Paul kind of stirred things up in Jerusalem, he got banished by the apostles, sent off to his hometown of Tarsus. When it was time to go fetch him, guess who went to get him? It was Barnabas, the son of encouragement who trekked hundreds of miles through some very rough mountains to find Paul and bring him back. It was Paul and Barnabas together who were called to lead a church in Antioch. And the thing that was different about that church was, it was up north of Jerusalem, it was a Gentile church. It wasn't Jews. It was a bunch of Gentiles. This had never happened. It was kind of unsettling to the Jerusalem church. But the Holy Spirit came and and empowered that place. And so there's something big going on in Antioch. It's Paul that Barnabas brings back so that they can pastor the Antioch church for a year. I imagine that Paul was kind of the senior pastor, the preacher. And Barnabas was the, uh, the visitation pastor. He was in charge of pastoral care. And what a great team they must have been. And then at one point, the church in Antioch said, hmm, if, if we discovered Jesus, why shouldn't we want other Gentiles to discover that God loves them too? And so it was the Gentile church in Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas off on the first missionary journey. Take note of that. It was not the Jerusalem church. It was the Gentile church that sent them off. And guess who goes along with Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey? Who is it? John Mark, yeah, Mark, okay? So Mark and his cousin Barnabas and Paul, they set out. They took a a boat ride over to an island called Cyprus. You'll see it on the map behind me. This was Barnabas' hometown. He came from Cyprus. And so it was a a natural place for them to get started. And so they go back there and they begin to preach the gospel. And God does some powerful things. They ran into some magician who wanted to do some spiritual battle with them. And Paul made the guy look like an idiot. And, and, And the governor of the island ended up believing in Jesus. Sergius Paulus was his name. And after they'd kind of made their way through Cyprus, they came to Paphos, which you see on the southwest corner, and they got on a boat, and they headed north, north to what is now modern-day Turkey, because they, they wanted to carry on their preaching ministry there. It is there on the coastline of modern-day Turkey that we read this very cryptic little statement, the next chapter over. So you're in Acts 12, turn to Acts 13, 13, Acts 13:13, 13, 13, and we read in the, halfway through that verse this cryptic little phrase. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So things are going good. They got a head of steam. They got wind in their sails. They're ready to launch off into their ministry in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and all these places. Suddenly, on the coastline, Mark says, I'm out of here, and he just leaves. We have no explanation of his departure, although many uh, scholars have have provided all kinds of reasons that he might have left. One one school of thought is this. Mark was homesick. He went to Jerusalem, that was his home. One, scho- one scholar literally wrote, maybe he missed his mommy. So Mark headed home to be with his mommy. There's another uh, a theory that that, Mark, uh, that Paul got sick with malaria. We have reason to believe that might have been so. And then that Mark, terrified by this devastating disease, says, I don't want to get sick. And, and so he of He left. Another theory suggests that, that Mark didn't like the change in authority that had taken place. Remember, in the early days, it was Barnabas who was calling the shots. It was Barnabas who was the leader. And you know this because every time Barnabas and Saul's name are mentioned, Saul became Paul, by the way, every time their names are mentioned, it is Barnabas' name that is first. Anytime you see lists of names in the Bible, always look for the one on the, the first name because it normally means that they are the premier, they're the primary person, they're the leader. And so Mark came into a situation where Barnabas was calling the shot and Paul was along for the ride. Suddenly in the middle of chapter 13, the name order reverses. That is significant. Suddenly it becomes Paul and Barnabas and for the rest of the New Testament... Every time they're mentioned, it's Paul and Barnabas. That is the order. So some suggest maybe Mark didn't like this. They didn't like. He didn't like the fact that his cousin, who was now playing second fiddle to the guy that he had called out of exile and, uh, and had discipled into this role of ministry so that, that he just ran off. He, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. There are lots of other theories. Mine is a lot simpler. You want to hear it? I know you do. Here's the theory. I think he was afraid. I think he was afraid. They were about to go into a part of Turkey that was very dangerous. Uh, they were renowned for the, the, the bandits in that area who would attack uh, the, the travelers and, and, and beat them up and even kill them in order to steal everything from them. And he didn't want to, maybe he didn't want to make that journey. And by the way, um, later on we are going to read in this story that Paul was in fact stoned to death uh, for the preaching of the gospel. It was a day, oh, I mean, stoned nearly to death. We think he was probably raised up from, it. but it was a dangerous place. Uh, and he had certainly seen Paul in action on Cyprus when he was willing to take on this magician and, and duke it out. And so maybe Mark said, whoa, 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 this is not what I signed up for. I wanted to tell Bible stories, but I, I don't want to get in this kind of stuff. And so maybe he was just afraid. And so he, he pulls the plug and he heads back. To Jerusalem. Well, Paul and Barnabas continue on. As I said, they had a, an encounter with his mob that tried to kill Paul, but they return after having preached in several of the towns there. They go back home. They rest up, and they are reporting what the Lord has done. Everyone's excited, and then we come to chapter 15. So turn to 15, verse 36, 15, 36 and we read this. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they were separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. In this account, we see the son of encouragement doing what he did best, which was what? Encourage. He said, listen, I know the kid's young, but give him a, give him a chance Give him a chance. I really believe in this kid. He's got a great heart. Give him one more shot. Don't give up on him. Let's take him out again. He's an evangelist in training. He's going to be great for the church. Paul was, Paul, I mean, Barnabas was going to give the kid one more shot. But Paul didn't see it that way at all. As far as he was concerned, he had deserted, he had defected, and he didn't want him back. In fact, we get an idea of that from the word that is used to describe his withdrawal. The word that is used there where it says he had withdrawn from them is actually a Greek word, apostason, apostason. What English word do we get from apostason? Apostasy. Say it. Apostasy means a falling away from the faith. It's the loss of salvation. It's a, it's a very grievous kind of a word. As far as Paul was concerned, this wasn't just him slipping off to Jerusalem. This was a spiritual dereliction of duty. Mark was on, on, on call and he went AWOL from, from the Lord. And that was it with Paul. He was done with him. And he wasn't about to give him another chance. And so this leads us to what I think is one of the saddest moments in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways they go their separate ways. And, and Paul takes Silas and then they continue where they were going up, back up into the mainland of Turkey. And Barnabas takes Mark and they go back to Cyprus. And so far as we know, so far as the New Testament tells us, Paul and Barnabas never saw each other again. We don't have any record of them communicating together again. We have no record of them ever laboring together again. It was a great division. I... And I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the impact that Barnabas had in Paul's life. He was his mentor. He believed in Paul when no one else believed in him. He was willing to fetch Paul from Tarsus when no one else was willing to make that journey. He discipled him and mentored him and championed him and pulled for him and encouraged him. And they did great ministry together. In fact, at one point... When it's clear that that God wants Paul to be the guy that's in charge, Barnabas, how humble is this? He steps back and says, okay, take the spotlight. I'll play second fiddle to you. That is incredible grace and humility, isn't it? But when it came down to John Mark, his beloved cousin, when Paul wasn't willing to budge on this, wasn't willing to give this kid one more chance, we read the text says that there was a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement between the two. And it, it was the end of a once great apostolic partnership. I'm a Presbyterian. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We, we believe the Lord can take and use all circumstances. And certainly he, I'm sure, used this division of labor in some way. But I've got to tell you, it still makes me sad. The thought of these two guys who were so close going their separate ways. It, it, I find it sad. When I was growing up, I had a pastor, in our family pastor in Yakima. His name was Dave Newquist. Dave Newquist was the guy who knew me. He prayed for which seminary I would go to when I was still in middle school. In middle school. There were a lot of people praying for me in middle school, and they weren't praying about which seminary I was going to. I can guarantee you that. He was the one who called me down to Bakersfield to do youth ministry when he took a church down there. And it was he who called me to be the young assistant pastor for him when I finally graduated from seminary. I can't tell you what I owed to Dave. He was like a father to me, the spiritual father. And so when I think of Paul separating from Barnabas, it's like me trying to imagine, what would it take for me to have abandoned Dave Nuquist, my spiritual father, And it's just, it's inconceivable to me. So that's the way that this story really takes on life, is to imagine that. Yet so far as we know, Paul never saw his mentor again. Which is ironic, because the guy that was the cause of all of this in the first place, John Mark, Paul saw him many times again. In fact, we turn to Colossians. So here's you have flip through to Colossians chapter four, and we discover this. Paul, by this time, it's about fifteen years later, okay, and Paul now has been arrested. He's in prison, and he wrote what we call the prison epistles: Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And in his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter four, verse ten, we read these amazing words. Prepare to be amazed. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Is your mind boggled? It should be. Mark, who had abandoned Paul way back then because things got scary, because it looked dangerous, now he is standing at the side of that same Paul who is in prison waiting to die for his faith. He didn't, as it turns out. They kicked him loose. But then one more time he was arrested. And now we come to Paul's last will and testament. The very last words that we have from the Apostle Paul we find in the letter to Timothy. Remember I told you about Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. When we read that, we are reading the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul because he was in prison again and this time he was going to die. He was going to have his head taken by a swordsman in in Rome. Okay? Okay? And, and Paul is there, and, and I love this letter of Paul, his final words as, as an old man who was about to face his own death. And, and in it, in chapter 4, are these words that mean so much to me the ones I want engraved on my tombstone. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You've heard those words, right? Right after that passage, though, we read another incredible account as he writes these words to Timothy listen to what Paul writes in chapter 4 verse 9 of 2nd Timothy do your best to come to me soon he's in prison he says Timothy get here as soon as you can he says for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica Crescens has gone to Galatia Titus to Dalmatia Luke alone is with me get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry isn't that an amazing circle that has just taken place here Mark whom Paul refused to give another chance Mark over whom Paul and Barnabas separated. After all these years, Mark has gone from being the cowardly defector to someone that Paul says is very useful to him in ministry. I find it even more ironic to realize that Paul, in his last days, writing as someone who's a lonesome. He's abandoned. Did you hear it? He's been abandoned by, by Demas and by Crescens and by Titus. They've gone off. Some of them for, for wrong reasons. The only one left there in his prison cell is his good traveling companion, Dr. Luke. And so he, he sends this letter to pleading Timothy, come as soon as you can and go before you do though, track down Mark and bring him to me because he is useful. Isn't it something this guy who feels abandoned in, in his last days, he turns to the kid that abandoned him at the beginning of his days of ministry. He says things have changed. What a wonderful redemptive circle, isn't it? That we come back to. And by the way, Not only was he useful to Paul, Mark turns out to be useful to us too and to the entire church down through the last two millennia. Why do I say that? Exactly right. I heard it over there. You know, we have four books that we call Gospels, right? These are the description of the life of Christ. Do you know chronologically? They're not chronological in in the order that we find them in the New Testament, Do you know chronologically what the first gospel was that was written? It was the reminiscences of Peter and they were taken down by a man named Mark. The gospel of Mark was written by this John Mark that grew out of that relationship that was born perhaps that day in his mom's house when Peter was set free and came to be with him. How useful is that? Aren't you glad that that Paul didn't give up entirely on Mark? Well, In fact, there's one more little tidbit if you don't mind this, this, uh, this biblical hunt. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 14. Because um, I think there's a hint of Mark's, Uh, hand in the gospel that he wrote. We turn to Mark 14 verse 51. This is where Jesus is being arrested in Gethsemane, okay? And we read this little snippet. And a young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It is suggested that he had only a lemon cloth because he got up out of out of bed when it was hot and he wrapped it around him to follow Jesus to the to Gethsemane. And while he's there, the, the soldiers come, they arrest him, and this young man is afraid. And so he runs away and the soldiers try to grab him. And they grab the cloth and the kid runs off buck naked uh, into the streets of, of Jerusalem. It's only Mark who tells this story of this young kid who does this. And, uh, and ancient historians tell us that they think this is Mark's autobiographical reference to himself. This was Mark. It's like Alfred Hitchcock putting himself in a cameo appearance in his own movie. This is Mark's Alfred Hitchcock moment. And, because, and, and I find that even more fascinating because if it is true, then two times in Mark's early life, We find him drawn to Jesus. Two times we find him drawn to the disciples and interested in engaging in the proclamation of the gospel. But when the pressure was on, when the chips were down, he runs away. Not once, but twice. Which honestly makes me, I think my instinct would have been to side with Paul on this one. You know, when they're ready to go back into the field and Barnabas wants to bring him and Paul saying, no way, man. He already had blown it. He's already failed. I need someone I can count on, not someone I wonder if they're going to be there the next morning when they get up. You know, I've I got a lot of people that work here. I don't like to hire back people that quit because if they quit once, they quit again. And so honestly, I'm kind of with, I think I would have been with Paul on this one and say he's unreliable. We can't count on him. And so that's the reason that Paul kind of kicks him to the curb. And then years later, ends up eating his own words. That timid kid who could not be counted on, in a pinch he ended up being the one who stood by Paul in prison, and he's the one that Paul begs to have Timothy bring to him in the final days before he faces the executioner. Isn't that a great story? In some ways, I think there are two supporting actors in this. The first one, of course, has to be who? Barnabas. The son of encouragement. And we see the way that he was willing always to play second fiddle, always to be out of the spotlight and lift up other people. I love that about this guy. But surely another one is Mark himself, who was the beneficiary of that grace, who launched and launched again, both times kind of in a failed launch. And yet in the end, Paul had to admit Barnabas was right. I can't help but hope that maybe in one of the many epistles that, law, that Paul wrote in those last days in prison, maybe he pulled out a little note paper and sent a note to Barnabas and he said, okay, you were right. I was wrong. He's a good kid. I don't know. I, I hope so. Maybe we'll discover it, that note someday. But he welcomed back, Paul, ultimately this young man who became so useful to him and so useful to us. I worked for Dave Nuquist for nine years down at First Press Bakersfield in doing youth ministry. I have no idea how many times Dave saved my job. In fact, I didn't even know how close I came to being fired by the session until years later when one of the elders came and visited me here and told me of all that was going on behind closed doors because of what I was stirring up for. I was uh, arrogant, I was brash, I was impulsive. I did crazy things without permission, because all I was thinking about was getting... I wanted to get a bunch of kids to know Jesus. So one time I hired a helicopter for $600 to drop flower bombs on kids as they were running out and around in the fields outside of Bakersfield. I thought that was awesome. (laughs) And it was awesome. I used to do a yearly car rally at Halloween called the Search for the Giant Missing Pumpkin where we hand out clues and the kids would drive cars from one place to another. And one of the stops I did was a cemetery. I snuck them inside the building of the cemetery. And they would go into the casket elevator in the chapel and down into the embalming room where the walls were covered with empty caskets, and I was lying on the gurney under a sheet with the clues in my hand. <laughs> now, if that doesn't scream, come to Jesus, I don't know what does. <laughs> and, of course, they'd grab the, they finally grabbed the clue, and then I'd go, and I go, mean, blah! It was, again, epic, an epic moment. And then there are other things that I'm not quite so proud of. There was a time that I chewed out a member of the office staff with these arrogant words. I said, I am a youth director and you are just a secretary. Exactly. I deserves to be booed. It was horrible. It was awful. And frankly, that's just a sample of what they got for nine years. It was a sample. I, I, I told you about the time I had an elder at a committee meeting, Christian Education Committee meeting. He got so mad at me he reached across the table and slapped me in the face. And then there's other stuff that I don't want to tell you about. So that gives you some idea of I mean, the things that really I, I probably should have and could have lost my job. But Dave Newquist laid himself down on the railroad tracks for me again and again and again. I must have exhausted him I must have frustrated him, I must have disappointed him, but he never gave up on me because he loved me, and he believed I had been called to ministry. And I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not Dave made the right choice whether it was worth the grief and the gray hair that I gave to that poor man, but I know this, Dave Newquist never gave up on me. He never threw me to the curb even when I gave him good reasons to do so. I wonder how many who are listening to this this morning can think of someone in their life, maybe a younger someone who has disappointed them, who has abandoned their post, Abandoned their faith, abandoned church, abandoned school, abandoned job, abandoned the morals that you sought to instill in them, and maybe you have reached a point where you said, "This is it. I'm just done with you." Maybe you are ready to just sweep them to the curb. Could I just could I just say this on the heels of this? conversation about John Mark the last chapter of that life has not yet been written God is not finished with them yet and I know how easy it is for you to lose heart I know how easy it is to be disappointed but God is not finished don't give up hope Maybe you'll even take your bulletin and you'll write down that name of the person that you're ready to do this with. Write down that name and slide it into your Bible and and promise yourself that you're going to pray them every day. You're going to lay them before the Lord. Ask God to give them the same kind of grace that he showed you because he did. And ask God to make you patient to wait on his answer for prayer. Don't give up. Don't write them off. One more chance. That's the faith that we are part of. Who knows, one day when you are in trouble, that might be the person that you are calling to your side because they have become useful to you. Don't give up. There might be also some here today who they would say that they are John Mark. They feel hopeless. Like a spiritual failure. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried to get it right and you keep making promises to the Lord and you keep running away. You keep making promises to your family and to your friends, and you keep disappointing them and failing. So I want to just imagine with you for a moment what it must have been like for John Mark to sit down with the apostle, this kid who defected, this kid who failed maybe twice, who sat down with Peter and they began to write down the stories that he told that would eventually become the gospel that bears his name. Can you imagine how encouraging it must have been for this kid, this guy that felt like a failure, who intended good but just never quite had the the fortitude to pull it off, to sit down and listen to this veteran, this venerable old apostle tell him how... Many times he failed Jesus again and again. Can you see Mark perking up as he's writing down the story where Peter tells how he walked out on, G- to on the, the top of the Sea of Galilee to meet Jesus and then he got afraid and began to sink. sink. Can you see him perking up when he, he, he tells him that they were in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus got mad at him for something he said and said, Get thee behind me! Satan, can you see him perking up when he tells of how he pulled out a sword to slice off the ear of someone who was attacking Jesus and Jesus said, put it away, Peter. Can you see him perking up when Peter recounted to him the shameful time when not once but thrice he denied that he even knew Jesus at his time of greatest need. Can you see how Mark perked up and was encouraged and reminded maybe God's not done with me yet. Who better to remind Mark that Jesus is always ready to give another chance? Who better to remind him that than the one who's our favorite disciple who failed Jesus again and again and again and was himself always given one more chance? We are the religion, the gospel, the faith of one more chance. And I want you to believe that no matter where you are, no matter how you failed, no matter whether you've been stripped naked and sent flying off into the, into the night, Jesus is saying, let's try one more time. One more time. One more time. Let's pray. Lord, we show up on Sunday, we got our church best on, we put our church face on, our church performance on, but there are a lot of people here today who would say they're pretty disappointed in themselves, uh, feel like a spiritual failure, feel like everything they try to do to, to get in line with what you want them to do, they, they, they stumble and they fall, and they're just afraid. Lord, would you lift them up? Would you encourage them to believe that you are the God of one more chances? And for those of us who are so discouraged and maybe even disappointed and maybe even disgusted with some in our life who have just frittered away their opportunity, thrown it to the wind and, and are headed down a, a road to disaster, would you please remind us of how many times we were doing the same thing and you kept saving us? And would you please give us the hope, the hope that, that one more time might be the, the moment that turns them around that you have not written the last chapter in that life. Lord, may we always be a church of grace, a people of grace, grace towards others, grace towards ourself, because you are a God of grace and how we thank you for it, through Christ our Lord. Amen.